welcome. Good evening for all of you who are joining us tonight. I'm just going to check in and make sure we are showing up on your page. And then uh, I will welcome Dr. Presmak. So. Okay, we are on Dr. Presmak. Awesome. Well, hey, everybody, if you're joining us live tonight, uh, just a reminder to throw in your comments in the section there. I will try to look at multiple screens and get to your questions and comments. We have an incredible treat for you tonight because I've got one of my good friends, colleagues, and just someone I respect so, so greatly in the world of functional medicine and a neurosurgeon. Um, I'll give you a brief intro in a minute, but Dr. Prosmek is a great guy, and I wanna just talk on a personal level briefly first. Um, this guy has uh, led the Denver Broncos with his neurosurgery skills. Um, he's created Resilience Code, this amazing center in Denver. And again, I'll tell you a more formal bio in just a second, but this guy, what I love about him is he has the inquisitive mind of a scientist but he's got the heart of a giant as far as how he cares for his patients. And we clicked right away when we met a couple of years ago, Dr. Bresmek. And just what we love is we love to really dive deep into the mysteries. And when we get talking, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. I wanna just give a formal introduction real quick and then um, we will jump right in. Chad is an East, Dr. Presmek is an East Coast native. He obtained his bachelor's in biophysics at Harvard University and his medical uh, doctor degree in neuroscience from Columbia University. He went on to do his neurosurgical residency and fellowship at the University of Miami and is now partner at Rocky Mountain Spine Clinic in Denver. He has a lifelong passion for sports. He was captain of the lacrosse team at Harvard and is currently neurological consultant for the Denver Broncos and the US Olympic team. That passion and education came together when he opened Resili Resilience Code in 2017. I will be sure and link Resilience Code in the comment section so you guys can check this out. Um, Chad, tell us just a little bit about, um, first of all, welcome. Nice Glad to you, Good to see you again. Yeah, you too. Um, and gosh, well, we have had such a fun time talking about yeah. patients and trying to solve medical mysteries and now we've got the virus, and I know you and I are both like on the front lines really trying to figure out not only what's happening to our patients, but how do we get us out of this epidemic, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, thanks, Jill. That was such a sweet introduction. Uh, the same feelings towards you. Uh, uh, just so everyone is aware, uh, Jill's basically taught me everything I know about functional medicine and has uh, been uh, one of the, the best uh, academicians and leaders and friends. So. Uh, right back at you, Jill. You're a very special person. So thank you oh, for being thank you. you. It's an honor. I remember, I'll just tell you a funny story. <laughs> I remember like, you know, I'm going along 2017, my patients and that and emails and stuff. And I get there and I'm good looking through my emails. And I'm like, Dr. Prosmek. And I get a lot of inquiries, physicians asking questions about this and that or whatever. And I'm like, reading through blah, 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 blah. Neurosurgeon for the Denver Broncos did it. I'm like, who says that <laughs> <laughs> yep. it, was in the middle and it was awesome to meet you. And then I think we talked by phone a few, a week or so later. And just like, I love your heart because there's not a lot of neurosurgeons I know that have the kind of heart that you have. And, you know, that comes across because it's the passion and the purpose that drives our inquisitive minds as far as finding the answers because we care about the patients, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you care about the story and uh, the, every person, every case has a story. And 
the thing about uh, a combination of functional medicine and surgery is uh, you get to bridge the story. Is the patient's health, their psychology, um, what's playing a role in their outcomes? And, uh, you know, without that 360 degree view that functional medicine gives, you really lack a basic understanding of the approach to everybody's story and uh, even today's story with the COVID-19. So. Yeah, you're so right. You know, a story is so critical. We learn in, in medical school how to get a good history and it's all story. But don't you find even more now after we've been several decades in practice, like listening to the story is everything. Like that's the foundation. I find almost all the clues that I need don't you find that so? I mean, yes, we love the science. We love the labs. Tonight, we're going to talk about some cutting edge stuff that you guys are doing at Resilience Code. But don't you really think it all comes back to listening to the patient? It's all that first interview and understanding the, the triggers, uh, their background, uh, really forming, looking for patterns and bridging them together so you can not only understand it yourself, but you can explain it back because it makes sense. And it kind of has to make sense, right? Because we're here and act for a reason and the biology behind us gives us those reasons and there's just different layers to it. So, uh, I mean, even today, I, I talked to a 17 year old, his mother, and uh, he has uh, cyclic vomiting early in the morning and uh, before games, uh, he's a lacrosse player. And, and, you know, you just got to dig into the history and, you know, turns out, pneumonia when he was a child, a ton of antibiotics, you know, mold overgrowth, that whole pattern, uh, and a histamine surge. And, and uh, you know, at the end of the day, it was a six-food elimination diet, uh, pepsid, uh, digestive enzymes, and antifungals. And everyone got it. Uh, so uh, thanks to you, uh, another young man is, is going to be well soon. So Oh, you are so kind. You know, I want to hear your story, uh, Dr. Presmek. Like, first of all, I want to go way back as how you got into medicine. And then I want to know how a neurosurgeon got into functional medicine. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just guess I don't like school enough. Uh, so <laughs> it, at the end of the day, I, you know, I was a lacrosse player. Uh, after I went to Harvard, I, I got such just a kick out of the people there. Um, I studied biophysics, and, and I realized that the subject matter was unique and i loved it but the sort of uh the the community around that just wasn't who i was i was a little more social than wanting to go forth with a career in biophysics so i applied to medical school fortunately they accepted me i i got into columbia and uh it was just such a great experience my, my preceptor there was dr Mehmet oz and he was such a stud that i looked up to this guy brilliant ex-Harvard guy, good person, uh, holistic, and he was a cardiothoracic surgeon. And I just remember seeing him, like he would bound from place to place instead of walk because he needed exercise in between cases. Uh, and so I was so enamored with him that I went on to sort of uh, pursue a career in cardiothoracic surgery. Uh, then in my fourth year, we had a neurosurgery rotation, and I remember distinctly going in and the music was awesome. They were playing Metallica. The guys <laughs> were all excited and they were like, Hey, come on in. Come on in and you know, you scrub in. I was like, sure. Scrubbed in. And then they, they, they give me the drill and they say, okay, drill here and don't miss. And so I took this cranium <laughs> tome and I drilled and uh, it went through and I, 
I sat there and I got tachycardic. I started sweating and I passed out. And I, I, I came to and I look around and they're all, they're all laughing at me. And they were like, hey, you know, uh, you broke your cherry is what they said. And you're like, oh, oh, what do you mean? They're like, it's supposed to do that. And they like, were all laughing. And that was my induction into <laughs> their weird world. And I was like, I like these guys. <laughs> so uh, I then, you know, went to neurosurgery and I was, I was, it was the right thing. Uh, the academics of the brain, the intensity, uh, brain, spine, pediatrics. It, you got to see a lot. And the one thing that I remember that tails into you, your back, your education, you're educating me and where I am now is uh, we ran the ICU by ourselves. So our attending, Dr. Heroes, wouldn't let us do any consults. So we had to intubate, put in swans. Mm -hmm. We had to take care of everything. And um, after a seven-year program of doing that, you really are a well-trained Marine. Mm -hmm. And uh, you just have such a broad, vast knowledge of, of traditional medicine and then neurosurgery. Um, so going out into the world, I think we were really well-prepared. Um, and, you know, where I am today, I, I just realized that you have to fill in the blanks outside of your surgical prowess that we all can't be so specialized that we are ignorant or blind to the big picture. Yeah. And if you miss the salient, juicy parts of life and science, uh, you really end up in a more ignorant place than you started out. So the flavor with which functional medicine, how you approach people and problems, uh, that's why I am here today and uh, why I'm happy to help. I love that. And I want to know, like, what was your first intro to functional medicine or how did you kind of get, what was the doorway into functional medicine for you? It was internet, seeing your website and then putting together like this makes sense. Uh, All this stuff I was trying to do with supplements and nutrition, using my biochemistry textbooks. Uh, I was like, wait, they're already doing this. And I was like, it's functional medicine. I was like, I've never heard of that. And so it was your website um, that then led me to the IFM website that led me to the A4M website and then the Bredesen website. And then like at the end of the day, I was like overwhelmed and I was just like, that's my next chore. And uh, so you were there in the beginning, you're, you're here now and, and uh, the education and the experience I've had, I mean, we've treated, as you know, over 500 patients here. Uh, we specialize in neurofunctional uh, medicine, uh, but do all functional medicine. And uh, it's, that's, it, was, it was you, and then it was you know, the, the spirit of the game, I guess. Yeah, gosh, I love that. Because even myself, years, 20 years ago, it's been a while now, but I remember the same thing. It's like, we know in our heart the reason we go into medicine. It's to find root cause. It's to solve problems. Like I was bioengineering, like your biophysics. So I loved processes. I loved complex yeah. equations. I don't do basic arithmetic at all, but I love differential equations and, and quantum. You have calculators for right? that. I know. <laughs> so, but I love, and I love what you and I do best is we take massive amounts of data and we synthesize and come to the conclusions of what is this data showing us and also just looking at the patterns, right? Like it's really pattern recognition. That's what's right. Really interesting is like I saw too, like I knew what I wanted to do in my heart. And when I first heard the word functional medicine, it was like, that's it. That's what I want to do. So we knew before we had a name for it, right? That's right. That's right. And, and, and you almost have to be a patient yourself mm -hmm. to get it because when you're a doctor, you're led down this allopathic pathway and 
your process is pathologic disease and meds and interventions, uh, which is not the whole story. It's just the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. When it's you, and as you know, you know, you were the one that diagnosed my Lyme disease, my mold toxicity, uh, et cetera. Uh, you gave me a why and, and told me my story. And uh, that was the missing piece. And I think that when you start to be able uh, to, uh, uh, you gave me a why and, and told me my story. And uh, that was the missing playback. Piece. Yeah. And I think that when you start. There you go. Sorry. <laughs> no, no worries. No worries. Uh, yeah, but like you're saying, um, having then had that experience uh, cathexed with, the, the education, yeah. like you then have a way that you could, you could get out of any problem because you, you can figure it out once the functional medicine process is layered on top of the allopathic process. You can fill in the blanks, yeah. uh, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent, like, and you're there to help the person in front of you and you have so many more weapons. Yeah. Yeah, it's like our toolbox is bigger, um, Dr. President, because honestly, what we, you and I love is that we use great science, great medicine. It's not like we throw away our allopathic training. I mean, that's the foundation. And I think that's what people come to both of us for is like, hopefully we're still a great clinician at the core, some of the best clinicians, you know, bringing that there. But then what we do is hopefully have a bigger toolbox, more things to use, diving deeper. Um, yeah, yeah I, you know, Jill, uh, you know, allopathic medicine is a disease care system. Uh, there's no one drawing the line for health care or authentic health. So I, I think that functional medicine is the best vehicle to start to academically approach how do I stay well versus how do I, uh, how do I get better from being ill. But then once you have the two, you'll connect them and then you'll say, oh, it's this toxin which leads to this inflammation which derails my immune system and I'm subsequently, I have cancer or I have heart disease. Um, and then once this gets hot, as you know, randomized controlled trials will occur, but philosophically it's impossible to, to do because it's almost like you're applying quantum physics to relativity. It's like yep. different domains. You can't, the laws don't work. Exactly- so the laws of a clinician don't work as the laws of group uh, you know, uh, medicine based off of, uh, you know, randomized control trials. And randomized control trials, which we were taught in medical school, gold standard of any uh, process that we do, any decision that we make, they're designed for drugs, A versus B or A versus placebo. So when you have uh, massive amounts of variables, like someone with Lyme disease and a virus, and they have mold exposure, and then they have 20 supplements and three medications and an IV, um, it's there's the complexity level does not lend itself to randomized controlled trials because you cannot explain away the variables. So, so right. we have to go into another realm of science. And the other thing is the science is coming out, and especially we're going to get to the pandemic, I promise you, stay, just hang in there, but <laughs> especially in the pandemic. Um, I don't know about you, Chad, but uh, data is coming out day by day, like a moment by moment, which means the science is actually right in real time. And most science as clinicians, we use it like 30 years ago, this, stu- this study came out, it's been proven over and over and over again. So we're going to use this drug. Well, Chad and I, what we're doing is we're kind of on the bleeding edge of what's coming out and we're watching to say, hey, this looks, number one, it's safe. Number two, there's decent data coming out that it's effective. And as the data builds, we may implement some of those cutting edge treatments before there's a huge randomized controlled trial because we don't want to wait for our patients 30 years. Um, Any comments on that, Chad? Because I feel like we're pushing the envelope and part of what gives us um, new opportunities and some of the stuff we're going to talk about tonight. 
Yeah, Jill. I mean, I think that the symbiosis is necessary for um, evidence-based medicine, looking at drugs and making sure we have the textbook to understand the drugs. So I, I think that that provides the content for some, but the context is lost. Yeah. And uh, you go into war with the army you have, and every person you see is a war inside of them that you have to find peace. And so to do so, uh, they're not going to wait for a randomized controlled trial, let alone understand it. Yeah, so, so I think it's this nice symbiosis between the science, hardcore scientific community, uh, the disease care community, uh, and there is the clinician and uh, trying to piece it all together. At the end of the day, we just all want people better, as you know, and I, I think we're as necessary to the big cause uh, through learning one by one as they are looking at, you know, maps of COVID-19 and trying to look at the spread. Yeah, they're all needed. Um, yeah. So one more thing before we jump into the virus and what you've been doing is I want people to know what you've created in Denver. About I want, to, I want people to know, first of all, like your vision, how it started, and then like, what are you doing now with Resilience Code? Because people need to know about this. Yeah, well, thank you, uh, Jill. So uh, the Resilience Code is what we call an infinite health center. It's um, our best go at a center that tries to use data in large scales to find codes in clients, uh, sick, well, or sports performance, and to use those broad masses of data and apply both allopathic and functional medicine to them in order to achieve whatever goal that person comes in. What people lack, I believe, is a clear road to uh, performance goals. That could be, I want to fix my Lyme disease, I want to score 5,000 touchdowns, um, or I want to get rid of my anxiety. Um, so once you understand what that goal is and set that, uh, you then need a set of circumstances of the state of the person now, uh, what I call situational awareness. So I want to know about the body, the blood, and the brain uh, as a pattern, and then apply things uh, to them that I can track and then see if we achieve those outcomes for that patient. And so say if that patient had Lyme's disease and joint pain, uh, and one of her goals was to alleviate joint pain, uh, did my interventions work, um, track it, um, measure it, and uh, at the end of the day, uh, become successful. And if you apply this algorithm um, of test, treat, track, retest, uh, we'll learn very quickly because you get so much out of the one-on-one -on -one relationship. Mm -hmm. um, a whole side of the coin uh, that we don't talk about is someone who wants to recover quicker, who wants to make it in the NFL uh, and has similar things that hinder them back. You know, a lot of these football players have dysbiosis and treating their gut treats their soreness and treats their ability to recover as you know and we've talked about so this center is built for able to deploy the tests the tracking and deliver the full cycle of care uh, in one 40,000 square foot building um, being very humble knowing that uh, we'll make mistakes but to track everything so we can share that information um, and lastly use a diverse group of very intelligent people so that one day you won't go to gyms and a primary care doctor 
the resilience code, which will have uh, doctors, strength and conditioning coaches, rehab, the full cycle of care, that will learn more about how we stay well, uh, just as we do on how to stay alive in the hospital. Amazing. I love what you've accomplished. And I kind of have seen through this, you know, the years, just how, where you're at. So yeah. let's talk about the virus. Like I would, before we jump into testing, um, we both believe that testing is going to be part of the way we get out of this and part of the way we kind of dig our way out and get society back to normal. Um, and we'll talk about that, what you're doing. I really want to hear about the stats and the data that you're producing there. But what's your thoughts in general about the situation we're in? Um, and that could pertain to, you know, the environment and toxicity and viral load, or it could just pertain to, you know, how we're dealing with this and, and any, any thoughts. I would just love to know your brain on COVID. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say the number one thing is that we're all a team and that you can't let the small print get in the way of the big print, which is we're here for each other. We are all going to make mistakes. We're all going to get anxious. We're all going to act weird. But at the end of the day, if we work together and we put aside our egos, we put aside our biases, uh, we'll be just fine. The world has gone through much worse iterations of life. And when I look around, you know, I'm not in the Holocaust. God, you know, God bless those who had to go through that. This mm -hmm. is not the Spanish flu. Um, and the uh, HIV epidemic was scary in its own right. At the end of the day, we all get through it, we adapt, we become more resilient, and um, I think we have to take that perspective. So humans first. Uh, two is you gotta dissect this out on layers. There's the front lines in the hospital, all the resources needed to go there, uh, but there are sufferers on route to the hospital or out there maybe propagating and transmitting the virus, uh, which need to be dissected, patterned, tested, and then treated accordingly and quickly uh, so that we can get back to our own lives and get this society back running. So when I look back, it, it's, it's arm, the, arm the special forces that are in, you know, in the trenches, um, but all of us strategists, uh, we should not rest until we know what way this is going to go. And what we got to do is learn how this virus is in the non-lethal population. Mm, love that, uh, Dr. Frosmack, because what I'm seeing uh, in my little, little tiny, you know, sphere is just, you know, when we first started with the epidemic, we were isolated. I'm doing virtual consults. I had a day of 10 patients. And as I talk through those 10, three or four of them were what I call presumed COVID positive, meaning they fit exactly the clinical picture. And I, I gave them a presumptive diagnosis of it's very likely you have COVID-19. So if that was my 10, 10 patients and three out of them were presumed positive, that meant my very first day, this was a month ago, 30% um, of my patients had COVID and guess what? None of them had testing, which right now you and I understand this. You and I understand the, the um, availability of the PCR testing was slim in the beginning, still slim. And so from the beginning, they were recommending high risk patients over 60 heart disease, diabetes or hospitalized. So almost no one else, even those with exposures, even those with travel, even those with symptoms that fit classically, like in this diagnostic, as I'm talking to the people, they fit classical diagnostic criteria, right? Um, so 
what I realized right away is if 30% of the people uh, of my population are testing positive, the numbers that we're seeing don't even come close to reflecting the real numbers, not even close. And everybody knows this by now, but I want people to understand like how the, how bad the testing state is and how I'm guessing it's a hundred or more times the amount we're seeing in the numbers in the graphs and the charts of people that are being affected, which means the death rate's lower. Some of this stuff is different than we actually see. So what's your thought? Yeah. About that? yeah Jill, I, I think, look, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not an infectious disease doctor. Uh, I, I, I'm a, a smart guy, you know, trying to do good just like you are. And um, the numbers in that domain matter uh, on a political level. Um, it does, I think, affect us when you look at what is the contagion coefficient? Mm -hmm. How do we understand how this thing spreads? Um, that number is, is pertinent, you know, uh, but if you ask the question, yeah, I, I think that this is not as infectious as measles. This is more infectious than influenza. It's debatable whether it's uh, got a higher death rate. Um, but one of the things I think that people should look at is why, why one person is getting sick and dying and not the other. So going back to this again, Julie, I, I, I think about this and um, I love knowing the stats. I love that Johns Hopkins map is phenomenal. That's such a great web page, you know, it's just like, you know, in one step, you can learn all about it. But when you look down into the dirt and say, wow, we have two people living together, one's positive and one's not. And, you know, this person has a diarrheal illness and they test positive and this person, you know, is sick as heck and tests negative, um, that we have to, again, understand its behavior. Yeah. And my opinion is, we don't know what this thing is uh, and it will be something different than what we think it is once we figure it out. Yeah. Um, and as you know, uh, this is more like a hypoxia malarial issue than it is uh, a pneumonia. Uh, and so I think we're going to be extremely interested in what these risk factors are because I think they will be different <laughs> yeah. than what we think they are now. Oh, thanks for that. And one thing Chad was referring to, if you haven't seen the blog that came out today, it's kind of controversial. Um, and again, what I, what I, uh, I, so I wrote that it's on my website, just jillcarnahan.com. Go there, look at the blog. And it's all about this hypoxia hypothesis. We won't spend a lot of time on that, but it's interesting because I think that there, it does present very differently from a classic ARDS. It actually presents more like a pure hypoxia or even altitude sickness. We're seeing the lung appearances and some of the criteria bit more with a different model doesn't mean it's that disease it just means it's acting not like a classical pneumonia and that just makes us think more about what else we can do to treat it so let's talk chat about what you're doing with testing because that's one of the big things i wanted to cover tonight i want to let people know number one what you're doing what you're finding out so far statistic wise tell me just a little bit about the testing that you're doing and some of the stuff that you're finding out sure i'd love to jill um First, let me make a comment on, on uh, your uh, email today post. Um, it is, uh, so Jill has an unbelievable uh, newsletter. Uh, and again, it puts together these narratives, uh, which are digestible, uh, important, and uh, they're actually actionable. And so the, uh, I'm reading the, the title back because I think everyone should 
should look for it. It's called the emerging theories that may help us solve the COVID-19 puzzle. Uh, I think that's the most eloquent. Uh, I think I spoke too long because if I just said that, you would have known what I, what I meant. But I think you, you capture everything just great in there. And that's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a well-written article and I found it very educational. So thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, so the testing piece. So the problem is the test, that's the reverse transcriptase PCR test. That, that test takes a, a picture and finds the actual virus. Uh, critically important, um, when we see someone pop a positive PCR in a Lyme's test, you get all excited because you know, that's it. Like this isn't uh, smoke and mirrors anymore. So it really gives you uh, the fact that the patient has it. So in a highly symptomatic population, uh, and a positive test confirms the diagnosis. The problem with that test, it runs, I think, a 30 or 40% uh, false negative rate, uh, so that you're gonna miss almost one in three. Now, if you're asymptomatic, then the likelihood of it being a false negative is less, and if you are symptomatic, the likelihood of it being positive is higher. I, I say that because it's looking at a very sick population where if you're gonna bet your money, they have it. And the problem is that's where we get most of our information. So it trickles down from there. The problem is that test in our population is irrelevant potentially because the window with which one may be able to test this in the carrier may be such a short window. It may be long, it may represent transmissibility or not. Um, but if one in three, are going to be negative, and it depends upon whether you're telling someone you're infectious or not, it's right. not a very helpful test for us out on this part of the war. So we were in a study uh, looking at a serology test. So these serology tests, um, they look at your, the shadows of the virus in the body. It looks at the body's response. Um, why is that? Uh, helpful. Well, it's helpful because it gives a timeline, a magnitude potentially, and a pattern. Mm -hmm. So because there are different antibodies and they all come out to play and fight at a different time, uh, one can then say that uh, this is a part of the disease. You know, um, one is never been exposed, uh, is currently exposed and infectious and symptomatic. Uh, has a past exposure. Um, so you kind of get a better idea and you can fit those clinical vignettes into uh, discussing their whole background, their story. And then you see, here's the pattern. Here's a pattern of young females who are IgM positive don't get symptomatic. Um, is that true? Yes or no. And then we can do something with that. We can give information, safety, and um, you know, this is all under the understanding that we don't know, not you nor me, you know, any, everything about the virus and have to be very cautious. But you and I have to make decisions on what to tell people uh, right now uh, without that. So you go into war with the army that you have. And with this army, this serology test, I think, will give us better context and hopefully lead to immune passports where we could say, you've had the virus, you're not infectious, you can go back to work and you can donate blood to potentially save someone's life.
Yeah, gosh, that's fantastic because it really gives an answer to part of the problem of when do we open up the economy again? When do we let people back, go back to work? What are you seeing with the results so far? Tell me more about what your pat yeah. patterns and interesting things that maybe you didn't expect to see. I didn't know what to expect, um, but let me just give you, we've done 72 tests. Yeah. Uh, again, just disclo disclosure, not FDA approved yet. We are in a trial. Uh, the sensitivity of this test has been about 95%, specificity around 98%. We've done 72 tests, uh, 57 have resulted, had 20 positives and 37 negatives. And in general, what one specific responder that is very interesting, there is in a responder to the early uh, immunoglobulin, so IgM, mm -hmm. um, that seems to be one, asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic and less infectious. Um, we have people that you're, we know that they had a social gathering where someone got sick. They've been quarantined, everyone's social distancing, and they come in for the test, never had a sniffle, and they have all of the early responders, the IgM positive. So then you're like, well, this doesn't make any sense. They don't have any symptoms. Mm -hmm. Why do they have anything? And then you test them 10 days later and it's the same. So we have about four patients who are asymptomatic, uh, early responders, the IgMs, yep. um, and they're not false negatives or positives. Uh, uh, so that's a very interesting population. People that have lived with some of these, so the significant others, have come up negative. Um, so it seems like here's an exposure, uh -huh. IgM positive, asymptomatic, and even though uh, they're with their significant other quarantined for long periods of time, the partner doesn't get sick or develop antibodies. Interesting. Yeah. So it makes you wonder, again, like you said in the beginning, the big question, which I think will come out of this in the end, as we look back, we're going to have more clarity, is what is the factor that keeps someone from getting this? Is it immune system? Is it toxic load? Is it blood type? Is it, I mean, I'm just throwing these random things out there, but there's probably things we don't even know yet that effect. And then if some of the hemoglobin stuff I wrote about is correct, maybe it's thalassemia is protective, or maybe it's um, hemochromatosis is not protective, or who knows, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, oxygen dynamics and the role of the red blood cell, um, I think, are paramount and oxidation reactions around it. Uh, you know, I think there's a, a gem in, in that biochemistry i mean i mean you're you're the you're like the world professional in in this you know what 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 have you what are your thoughts on this jill like um i know i loved you talking about the actual items like vitamin c zinc um what what have you seen well, you know, Jed, that's one reason I wrote the article is not to say that I have the answers because i'm simple functional medicine doc in Boulder, Colorado. Um, I do love mysteries, but I don't claim to know it all. And even this article, I was very careful to say, we're just in the middle, we're just theorizing that's in the title um, because we really don't know. But what I wanted to say is if this is true, do we, do we reframe wh how we're looking at it? And I wanna get people thinking because so many times, I remember medical school, it's like you get a diagnosis in ICD-10 and you get a medication and you basically memorize this formulaic type of practice where here's the diagnosis, here's the med, here's the diagnosis, here's the med. And we lose our ability to think 
outside the box and creatively and to really, really problem solve. And that's, again, what you and I love to do. So I love being in that place and trying to problem solve with this virus and say, what else are we missing? What even in patients, when I get to the point where they're not getting better, my question to myself is always, what else? What else? What else? What else am I missing? What else are they not telling me? What else? They don't even know. What other pieces of the puzzle are we missing? So same thing with this virus. So bottom line is, um, if some of this stuff with hypoxia relating to oxygenation of the blood is, is true, and that maybe there's more than one mechanism happening with the virus, um, especially what I mentioned with the iron oxidation. So when these iron molecules are released from the heme and they lose their oxygen carrying capacity, I equated it to like a raft that has been blown to smithereens and the irons like these guys that were on the raft that flew out into the water. <laughs> <laughs> and those irons, they're really disruptive. They're kind of like, you know, the brawlers at the bar or whatever, and they cause a lot of damage to the tissues. And so when these iron get thrown off the raft, they are floundering in the water and they're causing damage. And so if that theory is true, then things that neutralize reactive oxygen from the iron are gonna work. And what we do know to be true is the success of things like IV vitamin C or liposomal C to keep up the intracellular level of vitamin C is very effective. I mean, the studies in China showed this, they're now using it um, in trials in New York City. I don't know where else they're doing it, but we're starting to see that there is some power to that and it's so safe. So the better thing even about some of these things that I'm presenting is not only are they effective, but they're quite safe. Um, other things that may have potential are nebulized glutathione because you get that yeah. antioxidant effect right to the tissues where you need it most. This is basically like a breathing treatment like an asthmatic would do, but instead of putting albuterol for breathing into the machine, you put uh, glutathione into the machine. This is by prescription. All of these things are not typically done by patients on their own, but your doctor can prescribe those things and you can nebulize glutathione. Um, another thing I'm interested in, I don't have the data, but the data supports decreasing reactive oxygen pretty profoundly and the studies are many is inhaled hydrogen. This is a machine. I have one at the office. Some other doctors have them and I would love to in the near future be able to give treatments to patients where you just sit in with the nasal prong and you breathe in hydrogen ions into your um, lungs and the hydrogen mixes with reactive oxygen and creates water. So it's this totally neutral byproduct and in the process you neutralize lots of, of this, like these angry iron guys in your body. Um, yeah. Ozone, I'm not an expert on, um, and I'm not talking IV ozone, I'm talking just inhaled ozone in the nose, but my naturopath and many other doctors out there are experts, so I'll defer to you. But there's also an idea that perhaps um, ozone inhaled could be a uh, part of the treatment as well. So these are just a few of the things. And then of course, all of this stuff around zinc, vitamin D, um, N-acetylcysteine, potentially quercetin. There's a lot of different nutrients that are antioxidant and have potential. And I really, really do believe these things are powerful in helping our patients, especially the ones that are not on the verge. Those ones that are on the verge of respiratory failure, I mean, they need to go to the hospital. They need the machines. There's nothing wrong with that. But what if the other 90% we could help keep them out of the hospital? Yeah, Joe, when I, when I hear you speak, it, it, your health uh, is so important. Yeah. Meaning that like staying healthy, practicing those things that you're talking about. I mean, maybe it turns out that the people who are getting sick, uh, the young ones that are getting sick are unhealthy on the inside. They don't have the vitamin C deficiencies or hemochromatosis, which is the high iron levels, or, you know, they have a gene which their oxidative stress uh, is disproportionate, like an SOD mutation or something. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 I I agree. It's just, it's so hard when you have 
and your hunches are always right, but you have these hunches and, and you want to use this old artillery, but you really can only use it one-on-one -on -one, yeah. uh, because at the end of the day, you know, we can be responsible for the people, but it's hard to be responsible for uh, the world because like you said, everyone's different, everyone's story's different and their illness is different and you got to treat each one differently out here in the field. When I love that you say that, that's the important thing about this is like what you and I do is we sit with one person, we listen carefully, we put the data together and every plan is different. So Dr. Chad and I, when we create a plan, I, I don't have any protocols. So no one gets a one size fits all because everybody's different. And it's no different with the virus. So we're not claiming answers. It's just for individual patients. Some of these things may be helpful. Um, so testing, um, what do you think about the future of the testing that you're doing? And uh, where could we, do you think this is part of the ability to get our economy out of this? What do you see this as future? Like, could we take this um, to, you know, all doctor's offices? What would you like to see with the testing? I think we need everyone serologically tested. Uh, and that would mean symptomatic, asymptomatic, prior symptomatic. Uh, I just don't see a large scale rationale um, on how we get back to work safely um, without having a data or measurements that give me that reassurance, um, not the assurance, but the reassurance that given your sickness in January, dry cough, loss of smell, shortness of breath, I'm the sickest I've been in years, fatigue, uh, smell comes back, I feel better, and they have a serology test that everything's positive, and they're over 14 days out. Okay, this person is immune in my book, uh, probably immune in many doctors' book, um, and when and if that test gets FDA approved and is accepted into the professional you know, world, uh, the academic world, that person should get a passport and that person should then uh, go to the front line. And that front line could be a restaurant they work in. It could be a, a car wash. Uh, it could be a hospital. But in, until that the recipient of that worker is assured to some degree uh, that that person is safe and won't infect anyone else. I see this being the quickest and only way. It's always about data that couples with the story. You know, that's why we have passports. Uh, hey, I'm Dr. Pressmack. I'm coming into your country. Oh, yeah, we trust you. Oh, that's why I have a passport. Yeah. I have data so they can look at me and say, who is this character? And hopefully they don't find too much nefarious things in my past and they let me in their country. It's the same way here. I mean, you know, you and I swim in this very, you know, it's a crazy, difficult world that medicine is. People die, people are sick all the time. You hear about your complications, not your accolades, because your accolades, they go along their way, but your complications come back. Yeah. And, and you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a hard world. So I feel authentically bad that this is hard to explain. And, and that's why this data is so important. And it's so important to get that word out there and to get buy-in and to make sure we're correct. Because I think that these passports is what's going to get and help save our society earlier. Yeah. Well, and one of the reasons I brought you on tonight is um, I want people to know who you are, what you're doing. And so all of you who are listening, if you listen to the recording later, please share, especially with people that 
physicians, I'm going to share with my physician groups because I want people to know what Dr. Prozmak is doing. And if they're not doing it already, I think we can join forces in some of the data collection and um, in really making a difference because that's what it's going to take is at the ground level. Um, we're so used to being so independent in the United States. And the reason why some of the, uh, you know, um, uh, some of the different countries have had such success in decreasing the levels and getting people back to society is because they're much more of a community-minded um, country. We're all out for ourselves. Even our doctor's office, everybody's independent, which is great. But yeah. now's the time to kind of bind together and, and see if we can get make a difference. Yeah. Um, tell me this. Let's go before the last few minutes. We'll just we'll close it out in a few minutes here. What do you what are you doing personally to stay healthy? What's your protocol? What's your program? How do you stay healthy? Sure. So outside of the 30 bottles of supplements that I carry around in me, what's in them. Uh, so uh, I, I quercetin, uh, fish oils, uh, magnesium, um, the N-acetylcysteine is probably what I rely on uh, for detox. I take glutathione. Um, I take uh, a mineral complex. Uh, it, and then it, it jumps around. But when I look at my staples, uh, it's all, it's kind of somewhere in that realm and, and methylated B vitamins because I have one of those uh, SNPs for methylation. Um, the other, I, I guess, thing that I, I, I have full buy-in and it was from you is the use of binders. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I'm talking about my health, but the world is polluted. The best we do is try to stay away from all these things dirty, like you said, clean air, clean food, clean water, clean lifestyle. It, 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 we, we always get dirty no matter how clean we are. The, the binders I find extraordinarily helpful. I find that they pick up what I couldn't pick up. Um, if I rather have had one too many drinks or whether I ate Taco Bell when I never do, um, I, I find those quite effective. And I find those effective in my patients uh, mm -hmm. also. Um, so, you know, the glutathione things, the B vitamin things. Uh, oh, a curcumin is, is huge. Mm -hmm. I, I take a lot of curcumin. Um, and exercise is uh, supreme. So if you're to ask me, how do you stay alive? Uh, love those around you. Uh, work out like a demon. And then work hard and feel that you are authentically making a difference. And then all the supplements and stuff sort of fill in the gaps. Oh, love it. Oh my gosh. From the pro. <laughs> <laughs> about that, but. Gosh, and I, I would say the same and in sleep is huge i know not everybody has great sleep and and it's difficult i'm sorry to bring up <laughs> sore subject yeah, yeah not <laughs> but, my uh, strong point <laughs> yeah, no I, I find for me that's my kryptonite that is my secret weapon because i am a great sleeper and i i get i i maybe only get six and a half and seven but i'm getting like two and a half hours of deep plus two hours of REM. like i'm getting 97% efficiency. I fall asleep in like four minutes or less. And so sorry to brag about that, but sleep. Yeah, well, I'm jealous. <laughs> you got to put that uh, wearable on you and yeah, track you. Totally. Right. Oh, yeah. and you know, I wanted to say, cause I was a fiend for workout too. And I love it. And I totally agree with you, especially in isolation, Chad, but just personally, what I found is I was overtraining and I didn't even know it. And last year when I really like pulled way back and realized that my cortisol was sabotaging, I lost 8% body fat. Like without, with, I, I always joke, I stopped working out and got in the best shape of my life. And the yeah. truth is I still lift. I still, I have a pull-up bar behind me. I could do 20 pull-ups. I can, you know, so I'm still really strong and I do work out, but it's not like I used to with the intensity. And for me personally, as a woman in my forties, 
um, it really, really worked well because that high cortisol was sabotaging me. Um, and again, not everybody, some people do great with orange theory or high intensity interval training, or um, we both of us love the blood flow restriction bands. That's a whole yeah. other topic, but, but I'll let to say whatever works for you, but in this time, whatever you can do to decrease stress is key too. Uh, agreed. And exercise being one of them, you brought up a great point. One was uh, the overtraining principle. So what a lot of people don't understand is that, you know, uh, strength and conditioning is an academic science. It's not to the rigor of medicine, but there is uh, a rationale to set goals, to test, and then train and program people so that they never do get over trained. Mm -hmm. And they don't have their cortisol levels go up, their IL-6 levels go up, their IgA go down. Um, and so you can allocate the right metabolic stress that that unique person needs for, to achieve their goals in the absence of. So, you know, one of the things that we do great at the Resilience Code is integrate the strength and conditioning, rehab, and integrative medicine. And what we do is like test, program, and try to reach a goal. If goal not achieved, regroup reprogram but you got to track it like you said you can't measure it you can't manage it if you don't know what someone wants and the thing about working out like love working out i love kickboxing i love doing high intensity interval training but at the end of the day when you don't know what you've done over the long term you just feel good every day uh, that to me is not making long-term progress to longevity um that's doing the right thing in the moment and i just think that exercise is really underappreciated and the science of exercise is underappreciated. I love that, Jack, because had you tracked me, you probably could have saved me all those years. Of <laughs> yeah. But like, you I didn't know it. So hard. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, gosh. Well, let's just get, I've just got a few questions. I know one particular listener, I won't call out her name, but she just got the test that you run and she came back with um, two antibodies to proteins to IgA and two to IgM. She's asymptomatic. She does feel like she had symptoms three weeks ago. In the collection of your data, would you say she's one of those asymptomatic, probably had it, probably no longer contagious if she, she had quarantined for a full 14 days? Again, two IgM proteins, two IgA. And even though the IgM is still high, maybe retest her in 30 to 60 days? This is a great case. Yeah. So, um, that this so first you have to make a decision if i didn't have the test mm -hmm. what would i be telling the person okay yeah. so she doesn't need to go to the hospital you take a detailed history you listen when was your last symptom yeah like two weeks ago or more and if it was then clinically she would be over the virus given that she had symptoms that were very likely and that the exposures would be but Yes, the next step is retest in 10 days or more. Mm -hmm. uh, 14 would be preferable. But, but the reality is 14 days for science, but we want to see if she converts from IgM to IgG. I'm getting the feeling, and again, this is just my observation, that there's a subgroup that does not convert, mm -hmm. and they're the asymptomatic ones like, like this patient. Now, the IgA issues, I've seen diarrhea and uh, sinuses. Uh -huh. So the IgAs are more, again, this is a feel, a sense, yeah. not hardcore science, is the sore throat, fever, sinus, never thought I had it, IgA. Yes. Or fevers, chills, maybe a cough, and some gut problems, IgA. Um, that's just well, what I, I've seen, and I think that's important. What's important also is, uh, this presents in so many different ways because we have so many positives on 
if you ask me to take yeah. a test and you had a positive, I'd be like, oh, that doesn't sound like COVID. Well, us out here don't know what COVID is yes. and uh, we're just learning. Um, so you got to take every illness seriously, document the last and first day you've had symptoms and know that just to be on the safe side, if it is that at least 14 days, don't be near anyone high risk and always practice the safe practices, social distancing, hand washing, et cetera. Okay, this is super helpful. And there's a list, uh, one of the doctors who's listening asking, you know, what tests could they collaborate, collect data? Um, do you want to share the specific test? Do you want um, docs to know how they could collaborate with you? It's up to you how much you want to share yeah. here, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I have no disclosures or financial interests in any of these companies we're using and working with Vibrant. Uh, the choice was made based off of a prior experience. Uh, they have four markers. Yep. Uh, the markers, uh, that makes it more specific, yes. as you know, Jill. So instead of just one, it's all of them. Uh, so uh, it, it was that. More information. Uh, it's highly, it looks like a high resolution test. Mm -hmm. um, the, the company is really, we're about to look at the exact numbers of the titers. So, so answer one is we, we use that. More data is better. I'm not saying this is right or the only one, nor am I partial. Uh, I think we need to get these in everyone's hands. Uh, yeah, we're, we're trying to work with, with uh, companies, universities uh, to help collab, you know, collect all this data and make some, uh, some sense of it. And, and we, we have a discussion with one of the local universities uh, to collaborate tomorrow and uh, another private company. But I would recommend that doctors go out there, uh, get the test, uh, demand it, um, and know that disclose to your patients, this isn't FDA approved, I'm doing my best, yeah. but we gotta work as a team, and um, I wanna do no harm first, but I wanna play some offense. You know, this, the, you know, you can't play defense the entire game. I mean, I guess if you had Von Miller, you would, but you know, the fact is, is we, got, we gotta get our Peyton Manning going and uh, you know, punch this thing back. And I think our best way is to, to figure out what that Wiley virus is doing Yep. And I would just enable a, any doctor to collaborate to help people, to get people to donate blood. I think it's yeah. a bit. So I'm going to ask some questions. Can I just kind of rapid fire about this stuff people are wanting to know? And again, you can answer or not answer whatever is appropriate. First of all, if a patient's listening, they want to get tested, can they go to your facility? Or is that only, only your patients? Or where would you recommend they contact their doctor? Uh, go to your doctor first. Yep. Uh, and... Um, I'm happy to, to talk to, to those doctors, but yes, we are testing uh, at, the, at, at the resilience code. Uh, right now we're in the trial uh, basis. Hopefully this will be FDA approved soon. And then collectively as a society, doctors and patients alike, we all should get together uh, and you know, agree on the safety of these things and how we uh, consult uh, them on what to do. Uh, but yes, we, we do the test now, we do it five days a week, and uh, our goal is to get people safer quicker by delivering more data and information to them and to people smarter than me in this area. Love it. And then if doctors are interested, is there someone on your team they could contact that would, like, because I think I want to share this with my colleagues and my doctors more than anything. So if there is any collaboration, is there a team member, who would they contact from your, uh, this is for physicians only but who would they contact for to collect data with you? Yeah, so uh, Angela, uh, see, Andrea Beaver, 
she's our chief navigational officer. Uh, and so uh, she is the one that's uh, helping organize uh, all of the different blood draws. Uh, we all use masks, safe practices, we take in data. Uh, she would be the, the go-to contact person. Okay. Um, and you could find at least our phone number on our website, uh, which is www.myresiliencecode.com. Awesome. And I'll be sure and share that link. So if anyone, you scroll through the comments, you can see it. Um, awesome. Dr. Yeah. This has been so fun. We yeah, always awesome. fun together. Hopefully you guys listening, we've answered your questions. If you like this, please share because we, we, I did this just because I want to get the testing out. I want to get people to know what Dr. Presmax doing. He's quiet and he's actually for a neurosurgeon. He's very humble. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I just have to um, that because you really are one of the most nice, humble guys I've met, and you're a uh, neurosurgeon. Like, what's yeah. up with that? <laughs> I, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me, Jill. Uh, I just want to let you know again what a blessing you are uh, to my health because uh, you being my doctor and also to um, revolutionizing this field. So just oh. thank you for having me on. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening. Like I said, please share. And, and at your comments, I'll come back and answer those. Have a great evening. Good night. Yeah. Good night.